Hello again, and welcome to the show. This is Blight Stories in the Key of Decay and Repair. I am Sean Williamson. I am a person, and this is actually our last show of this inaugural premiere debut season. So from the bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you for everything. The listener, thank you for taking interest, for subscribing to Patreon, for reviewing the show on iTunes, for following me on Instagram and Twitter, or reaching out for the heartfelt emails for all the free drinks for picking me up while hitchhiking uh, or just responding, you know, inwardly or outwardly to the show and showing a great enthusiasm for uh, an excitement for season two. Um, I, you know, I can't thank you all enough. And to those people who are tuning in for the first time, what's up? This episode is called It Was the Funniest Thing. Is written by me and read by musician, radio host, and generally beautiful human being, Aaron Wolf. And I hope you all enjoy it. Okay, here it is. The funniest thing. It's the funniest thing. Written by Sean Williamson. Performed by Aaron Wolf. It was the funniest thing. My grandfather died on Easter when I was five years old. He was my father's father, and it happened late at night, because I remember my parents standing outside our bedroom in the early morning when the world was dark and exhausted with itself. I could hear truckers and third shifters whooshing and zooming on the highway behind our house. My parents breathing my mother slightly rubbing the small of my father's back, her hand against the fabric of his striped tucked-in polo. The floors in the carpeted hallway creaked beneath them, from the kitchen cast a suspicious light. It's too early for light bulbs. I pretended to be asleep and cracked my eyes so little it was a strain. They stood in the doorway and didn't cry, though in this memory I knew they had been crying. Every now and then, my father would take off his big plastic glasses, translucent brown and gray swirling frames, and press them into his shirt, rubbing the fabric over the lenses with his thumb and his forefinger. After a minute, they walked away, and I heard the front screen door open, my parents whispering to Greg. He was a teenage son of my mom's best friend, Tammy, and he watched us a lot. Greg would never take money from my mom for babysitting. When she got home from work, he would walk straight to his car, waving her off. No, 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 as she chased him down the driveway. One time at Tammy's, I ran through a patch of dirt where Greg was trying to grow grass. He was mad and questioned all of us, but in the end he suspected my brother, although none of us would cop to it. And life moved on. I looked up to him most as a kid. He showed us how to play Qbert on his personal computer in the basement. Years after my grandfather died, when I was a teenager, I saw Greg smoking a cigarette, wearing thick glasses and painter's clothes, sitting on a short cement wall that ran along the sidewalk, feet dangling above the ground. Painting supplies, tarps, brushes, buckets of cloudy water, littered the side yard of a beat-up duplex. It was the last block on the outskirts of town, which seemed like the end of the world, near the junkyard. I was with a couple friends, headed to the creek to drink peach schnapps out of a water bottle, Greg smiled, and I gave him a hug. What are you doing out here, he asked. 
Going to look for frogs by the creek. It's for school, I said. There aren't any frogs down there. That's all run up from the power plant. He motioned to the three stacks, a red light blinking on each, standing in the smog. On that day, it looked like a painted backdrop in a community theater play. Small engine planes dipped and rose from the airfield nearby. Huh. I didn't know that, I said. We hugged again, and my friends and I walked away. I looked back. Greg was still in sight. He had returned to his seat on the wall, and a plume of smoke hung over his head. He's lucky, I thought. Even though I wasn't entirely sure why. To be sitting, taking a break from work, cigarette in hand. No curfew, no teachers, money in his pocket on a cloudy day. We drank peach schnapps by the creek. On the day my grandfather died, I opened my eyes, rolled on my back, and looked up at the glow-in-the-dark star stickers on the ceiling. Our room was a mess. We had dumped the toy box the night before. I kicked my Care Bears blanket off and pressed my foot into my brother's bunk above mine. He was older and always got the top bunk. What? He whispered. Are you awake? Yeah. That wasn't the funny part, of course. Earl fought in the Pacific during World War II. He had a sword from a Japanese soldier he killed. When I saw the sword for the first time, I was ten years old, and was still sharp enough to cut off my arm. Earl, for most of my life, was regulated to a side room in the apartment he shared with my grandmother, just down the street from Oshlotsky's Deli in Menominee Falls. There were a bunch of units. They shared a long yard that stretched from one end of the building to the other side along the street. We would play football in the yard, or try to race cars as they passed. I can see Earl, smoking strikes unfiltered with his heavy lead bulldog ashtray. While we played in the living room, we stole glances into his room. Smoke swirling above his head, lines of light running across his face through the plastic blinds from the one window in his room. He was shrinking below sweaters and slacks as the days went on. At holiday dinners, the grown-ups would drink in the kitchen while we played with old Flintstone dolls and watched college football on the large television in the living room. They had a pea-green shade carpet that smelled like cigarette smoke. My cousins were much older, and all girls would bring their boyfriends. Julie's boyfriend was a Steelers fan. I remember that, because one year on Christmas, the Steelers played the Packers, and Yancey Thickpen dropped the game-winning touchdown. The boyfriend threw his Steelers cap on the floor, and everyone laughed and cheered and gave him shit. My grandma made strawberry jello. Then my uncle, who pretty much looked like my dad, came in drunk and handed all the kids paper bags filled with M&Ms, Twizzlers, Twinkies. We screamed like we had won Wonka's golden ticket. Earl sat in his side room and smoked cigarettes, and would yell every now and then for my grandmother to bring him something, and she would. I don't ever remember him coming out. He was on an air machine. The grown-ups would sit around the kitchen table and joke about how one of those cigarettes is going to blow up his air tank and save everyone a lot of trouble. This was a joke, obviously, or at least mostly a joke, but it seems possible now. How didn't he blow himself up? Maybe he didn't care. He got the Purple Heart in World War II because a pineapple grenade blew off some of his head. Not the whole thing, obviously, but some of it. Pineapple grenades are really called M2s. When you're a kid, you could get plastic ones in the toy section at any department store. You could toss them at your friends in the yard, or chuck one at your sister and dive behind the couch and scream, FIRE IN THE HOLE! 
I'm getting off track. I'm trying to tell you the funny thing about when my grandfather died. Earl died on Easter. We always went to church on Easter. Those services must have lasted for four goddamn hours, but for a kid, it was pure drama. Pastor Pete would stand there and talk about how Jesus died and rose again. Murder, betrayal, heroics, coming back from the dead, the whole crucifixion story is a real emotional roller coaster. That old lady in the balcony would be wailing on the organ and the choir would be belting and we'd sing a hundred hymns. But we didn't go to church that Easter. And by the time the funeral came around a couple days later, I felt I'd missed out on all the dramatics. This was the first funeral I remembered, and it was not exciting. My immediate family didn't do a lot different. My dad walked around the house, and people came to visit, and we ate and drank, talking quietly. Or we would go to someone else's house, and eat and drink and talk quietly. Us kids didn't understand it. It wasn't sad for us. We didn't have to go to church. We got to see family. It was fun. The day of the funeral, my mother set out our clothes on our beds. She was very kind, not stern. I can remember putting on my slacks, nice shoes, and a sweater, knowing it was time to be serious. No one had told me that. I just felt it. I buttoned up my shirt in the mirror and walked promptly to the living room. My brother and I didn't play cards or anything. We just sat on the couch and waited. I don't remember much about the funeral. I don't remember how much my dad cried. I don't remember my grandmother at all that day. Not at all. I remember my great uncle or third cousin, however it works in a big Irish family. His name was Jerome and he delivered a long remembrance during the service, something I'd seen him do a few times since. He is the go-to for funeral speeches, eloquent and patriarchal with command of the room. We sang hymns like on Easter, but there wasn't the same power. We weren't rejoicing because Jesus had risen. We were acknowledging a passing, a mourning, someone who is dead, and on the third day would still be dead. After the service, we went to someone's house. In the basement, there was a snack spread with sausages, mustard, pickles, cheese, potato salad, rye bread, raw beef, hot ham and rolls. Typical Scani potluck. It was the same whether you were celebrating or mourning. The basement was carpeted complete with matching Lazy Boys. Stock bar with a neon Miller light sign hanging over it. Robin Yount and Vince Lombardi covered the walls. People drank heavily as the day went on, and grief set in. I remember seeing Jerome walking around with a cup of coffee while mostly everyone else was drinking beer. I was a little shell-shocked to see him up close. I mean, he was the star of the funeral. I took it upon myself to walk up to him and tell him I thought he did. Good job. He smiled without saying anything patted me on the shoulder, and made himself a ham sandwich. Later, I sensed my mom wanted us to leave, and while she was inside rounding up my brother, I waited on the front cement steps and watched a group of men on the sidewalk by the street. Their close relatives and many of them were pallbearers. They started arguing, and punches were thrown. The two who started it were split up, bystanders fulfilling their obligation to not let things get out of control. I wasn't alarmed, maybe excited? I mean, this was the drama I'd been waiting for. The drama I'd missed on Easter Sunday. But in a moment, it was over. The men were being dragged in opposite directions down the street, screaming things that they would regret. I remember that it was cold. It was afternoon. That the men had ruffled their suits, and that the sun was setting. That golden light bounced off parked cars. There were wooden cutouts of old women gardening, 
beehives to the street that birds were chirping. That one of the men being pulled away down the street yelled something like, You never loved anyone but yourself! I remember that once the skirmish had passed, many people lit up cigarettes and cackled with burnt out lungs. And we went home, and the next year we went to Easter service. I can't remember who the fighting men were. Was it my dad? Or my uncle? I can't remember. If it was, you'd think I'd remember. It's the funniest thing.